WBZ original. Um, we have one follower on Twitter. Nice. I don't Excellent. know. It might be me. I don't know. Is it? Is it you, Paula? Welcome everybody into Studio BZ. I'm Paula Eben. Hi, Paula. John Hi, Keller John. here. Sorry, we're a day late. Uh, we had a huge reunion yesterday on the set of WBZ. It was incredible. Jack and Liz. Bob and Bruce and Joyce, and if you know those first names, you know who we're talking about. The anchor team, great anchor team of WBZ of the 80s, all reunited here. So you'll see that later on this week. And they look damn good, they too. It's incredibly incredible. well-preserved. It was fantastic. So, uh, coming up today, now that we do have Studio BZ for you, uh, sports betting legalized by the Supreme Court, and we talked to UNH professor Mike McCann, the sports law expert. And you're going to have a laugh when you find out what an integrity fee is. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of integrity, We'll talk with the founder of a group of Democratic activists who are using one of the most important tools that journalists use to expose political corruption. They've used it to uh, break a number of big stories about the Trump administration. American Oversight founder Austin Evers will join us. Talking about FOIAs. With our own Chris McKinnon. In any newsroom. And then really interesting interview with Berkeley professor Prince Charles Alexander, who makes the case for Kanye. Is he the Miles Davis of our time? Really interesting insights from inside Berkeley. What an amazing moment the other day, Paula, when the U.S. Supreme Court finally issued this long-awaited ruling saying to the federal government, you can't ban, just blanket ban, uh, sports betting. Anymore, It's going to change a lot in the industry for players, for fans, for leagues. And we spoke with uh, University of New Hampshire professor Michael McCann about the implications of all this. He was really interesting. Yeah, I think the sports fans who are are listening to us will already know Mike McCann. He's a a regular on sports talk radio around here and nationally. He founded the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute at UNH School of Law. And I went up and covered his course on Deflategate. You may remember that. And uh, he joined us to talk about, in part, his current article on SI.com, how the Supreme Court's sports betting ruling affects leagues, players, and fans. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. So there are a number of states, uh, including... Our, some of our biggest competitors in the gambling biz here in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York. As I understand it, they already have legislation ready to go. They are ready to rock and roll and, and uh, build up some kind of infrastructure to have sports betting. Where does that leave us? Yeah, Connecticut is at the forefront. And I imagine the other states that you mentioned are probably ahead of Massachusetts. Massachusetts mm-hmm. will have to think about what it what place it wants in this industry does it want to allow consumers to to engage in sports wagering i know that there's going to be a rush to get in in terms of states but there will also be some pushback we know that some lobbying groups will talk about the public health considerations of sports betting the fact Mm -hmm. that the house usually wins and, and and there's no shortage of stories of people that have lost money by betting, and and presumably the same would be true with sports betting. So I I think it's an issue that the state will have to think about. But, you know, the other aspect of this is, let's say a state legalizes sports betting, that's going to mean a very different thing by state. 
who will get a license? How will license be distributed? How prevalent will they be? Well, right, and the- I, I think the question, Michael, is for, for both leagues and players' associations, uh, it's always necessary to look at the law of unintended consequences. What do you think are the pitfalls for the players themselves, ownership, and the leagues? Well, I think the leagues and the players, by extension, wanted, want to cut, right? This is a big part of the story that they are arguing for so-called integrity fees. Integrity fees would be an amount of money generated uh, through total wagers on sports. So leagues would get perhaps 1% of a cut. And they would argue, and they've argued that that money is justified on grounds that they need extra funding to ensure that games aren't tampered with, that athletes aren't bought off, that coaches, managers aren't bought off, that there's a greater degree of monitoring that will take place, particularly if it turns out that, let's say, 30 states make sports betting legal, it's going to be 30 different regulatory schemes. I mean, this is one of the drawbacks of having it done on a state-by-state approach, that if it were done federally, there would be one set of rules. But you know, getting to that point seems difficult. Hey, call, Michael, call me square, but isn't integrity fee an oxymoron? <laughs> I mean, what the, the yeah. hell came up with that term? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a term that, le- that obviously has the optics of it somehow for a, for a virtue, uh, when in fact it's really about, ins- at least ostensibly, assuring that that games aren't tampered with. So, you know, I mean, we we label things in a way. I mean, it, it, and it's it, it's it, it is designed to attract public support. Whether it gets it, I don't know. I mean, actual. You know, corruption scandals involving pro athletes, for all of the talk about them, are really quite rare, aren't they? You had the NBA referee a few years ago who confessed to being, uh, I guess, on the take, if I if I don't recall incorrectly. You had the Boston College point-shaving scandal. That's over 30 years ago or so. Uh, am I right about that? Is this uh, an uncommon occurrence? Yeah, at least it's uncommon in terms of what's detected. I'm sure it yeah. happens without detection. But yeah, in terms of actual controversies, there aren't many of them. And they, they come up every so often. I don't know if changing the law on sports betting is going to impact that at all. I mean, you, you figure people that are going to try to buy off others aren't really motivated by whether something's legal or not. So I, I don't know if this is going to change that dynamic. I think the same incentives will be in place and the same challenges for leagues and players associations by extension extension will remain. Well, you know, I got to tell you, Paula and I were talking about this yesterday and I was telling her about the situation in the final game with the Sixers, where the Celtics eliminated them, that thrilling finish, where Marcus Smart was at the foul line uh, with two foul shots and a, a, a one-point lead and just two seconds left. So after missing the first, he went to intentionally miss the second. I don't know if you saw this, Michael, on the theory that it's better to get a rebound, have the clock tick down, than let them get the ball out of the basket with just the narrow lead. As he throws it at the backboard and it goes in. The Celtics wound up winning anyway and covering the one-and-a-half-point spread with that uh, made foul shot. Right. But, uh, Michael, you could hear the buzz in the garden when he made that. And those were all fans who had money on that spread. What's it going to be like when everybody and their brother 
uh, has Doe riding on the outcome. Certainly, it's going to raise the interest in it. But, you know, to some degree, this already taken place with daily fantasy sports, right? A lot of people play FanDuel and DraftKings, and a similar set of issues are in play in terms of outcomes. And but but you're right, John, that these are small things in games that are really hard to police. It's one thing to to, to throw a World Series like the Chicago White Sox did, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, but to just slightly alter the games in ways in which the same winner emerges and the same loser emerges, but the point total is different. Very hard to police that, and you know that's why I, I said earlier we only know of so many scandals. I suspect that other things have happened that just aren't detectable because it's really hard to know. What do we know from Britain and European countries and their experience with sports betting? What can we learn from what goes on there? Yeah, Paul, I mean, I think a big part of that story has been monitoring companies, that they have had a, a major stake in European sports. And also there are integrity fees mm-hmm. that are paid over there. And that's something that the NBA at least has talked about, that this isn't a novel concept. So I think we could learn that companies that are into monitoring of activities are able to play a a more prominent role than they play here. I suspect that they'll play a a larger role over here. Well, interesting New York Times piece on this that John forwarded on to me, and it points out nine of the 20 soccer teams playing in the Premier League have the names of gambling companies emblazoned right on their jersey fronts. So do you think we're going to see NBA jerseys and NFL jerseys well, I mean, that incorporate those? The NBA, the NFL is is coming into Vegas sure. with the Raiders in a couple of years, and the NHL is already there. Mm-hmm. So uh, that stigma seems to have faded, Michael. I think the stigma has faded quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, you don't hear people talking about the worry of, of people betting on sports, right? That this isn't a social ill that's getting a lot of attention. To be sure, there are people that are going to play and bet on sports and are going to lose a lot of money. And we know that the house usually wins. So there will be some tragic stories. There's no question about it. But I, I don't think, at least at this point, that that's a big part of the conversation. The other thing that has surprised me reading your article in, on SI.com and, and other material about this is you sort of think of uh, sports betting as this huge mega pot of gold, but the numbers really aren't living up to that billing, are they, in terms of potential revenue? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's so hard to know because the numbers that we're seeing are all over the board. Right. You know, we're seeing these very speculative predictions as to how much money will be generated through sports betting. It will clearly be a lot but a lot of it will depend on which states adopt it, how quickly they do it. And also, a big part of the story, I think, will be what kind of games can you bet on? Will it just be pro? Will it include college? Will, will it include high school? Will it include Olympics? Who gets a license? Will it be just established operators? Will it be leagues themselves? Could you go you know, to, to uh, a Celtics game and bet at the game? I mean, I, it sounds crazy, but... Maybe it's not. It feels a lot like what we're going through with the legalization of marijuana, where state by state, it's being rolled out and we're just kind of learning as we're going along. Yeah, and watching how effortlessly the Massachusetts state government has (laughs) handled first the rollout of casinos and now marijuana. Oh, my God. Uh, We're going to have to buckle our seatbelts if we dive into this. But how can we not? We're the sports capital of the universe here and we're a big wagering culture here, Michael. 
We are, although, you know, the marijuana example is a great one because look how long it's taken. Yeah. Right? Well, that was actually years ago would be swift. I mean, not, none of this happens fast. And yeah. I mean, that's not unique to Massachusetts, but it seems like it's more of an issue here. Uh, no, no question about it that this is not a swift result. But, but people do like wagering in mass. And, you know, I don't know if the sort of uh, puritanical view is going to to wait <laughs> at some point, but. Uh, to be sure, there, there will be interest in that. It definitely factors in. I've, I've given this example to John before. I have a relative in Ohio who will tell you between the legalization of casinos in Ohio and four open around the state, two years. That's how fast they Ohio got up and running. was able yeah. to do that. Yeah. And Massachusetts is still trying to get this thing off the ground. So, Michael, I want to put on my uh, fuddy-duddy, get-off-my-lawn hat for a second <laughs> and talk about the potential impact of this on young people and, and younger players. I mean, look, we all know we've got this smartphone generation that's growing up. Uh, the kids are uh, perhaps more than ever, this is a generation that's attuned to instant gratification, likes, retweets, you know the whole drill. So seems to me sports betting, particularly sports betting on your smartphone, is tailor-made to scratch that itch. You are interacting with young people all the time at UNH. What are your concerns, if any, about how this is going to affect young people? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a legitimate worry. I mean, we know that it's a worry that people have had with daily fantasy sports that, that young people could lose money participating in that. Uh, a similar set of concerns will exist with sports betting, that that instantaneous ability to place a bet. I mean, every, everything they do is instantaneous, right? That there isn't a whole lot of time to, to think through maybe some of the, the larger reaching implications, and it will be up uh, you know, clearly for parents to, to weigh in on this, to make sure that, I mean, that their bank accounts aren't being mm -hmm. linked to, to, to things like this. I mean, it, it will be an issue, and uh, it's going to come down, to, I think, to parenting and to schools to make sure that they're, that they're telling students, look, you, you know, be careful here because it's exciting but you can lose a lot of money fast. Sure. And, you know, right off the bat, we automatically think of all our pro sports teams here in New England. But you can imagine how this will impact the NCAA. Uh, what will people think start of having it affect March Madness? When you're dealing with college players, it might make point-shaving scandals of the past seem yeah. quaint by comparison. Will they allow betting on the marathon? Sure. Yeah, Anything. I mean, yeah, great question, right? In Britain, in this... you can bet on, on what color the queen will wear to the royal wedding. Yeah. Right. And, and, it will, and this will be for, for each state to decide it, the principle of allowing sports betting. How broad does, should that be construed? I think al allowing it on the marathon, allowing it on high school sports, Olympic sports, international competitions. I mean, the, li the list of possibilities goes on. And I have a feeling there will be pushback about how wide, widely that should be defined. Well, well, Michael, we'll let you go, but you made a great point. I mean, the law is not your parent. It's not your nanny. Neither is the government. The Supreme Court has ruled this was an infringement. These, this federal law was an infringement on states' rights. And now it's going to be up to the states and the people in them to decide, hey, we're grown-ups. What do we want to do here? How much can we bear? That's exactly right. The, the, the Supreme Court is saying the, the federal government cannot commandeer states on this question, and it will be up to the, the people we've elected to represent us in state houses and state senates and the governor's office. And this will be a test, like any issue. Uh, but this will be one that I think 
individuals who don't normally pay attention to politics will be very interested in. So it could lead to more uh, uh, oversight, if you will, of those in office. Our Puritan forebears are spinning yeah. in their graves. <clears throat> well, begin to bet. <laughs> Michael McCann, thanks so much Thank for your you. time. We know you're a busy guy, but we're always looking to put together a little side hustle here. Maybe later <laughs> on, the, the three of us can talk about setting up a, a toll-free number. I've got a, a total mortal lock on the uh, rest of the Cavs Celtic series that <laughs> I could share for the first-time callers. I like it. One one nine hundred. Remember those numbers? Oh right? yeah, exactly. Yeah, Michael. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. Our city is truly the hub, the hub of the universe. The Freedom of Information Act sounds dry and boring, doesn't it? But it is not. It is perhaps the single most important tool that both the media and activists have to help uh, impose transparency on a government that's often reluctant to be uh, overseen and to uh, uh, bring knowledge to the public about what government is doing with their tax dollars. We're going to talk with the founder of a group called American Oversight. Uh, He's a lawyer who studied here in Boston, clerked for a uh, a Supreme Judicial Court judge up here. Uh, They were formed in the early days of the Trump administration, Paula, to use the FOIA, or Freedom of Information Act to really go after and expose corruption in the Trump administration. They've had a number of stories that you will find familiar. And uh, these are not journalists per se. These are advocates and activists. They're all Democrats. But the saga of how they're using this tool and the implications of it, I I think, make a great story. Great information. And uh, WBZ's Chris McKinnon, our morning anchor, interviewed Austin Evers. So first off, why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about your organization, how it got started, and, you know, how you decided to become involved with this. So uh, I founded American Oversight just about a year ago in the wake of the 2016 election. Uh, Like many Americans, I was uh, deeply concerned about uh, the character of the person coming in to lead the uh, the White House and the type of person that he would bring in to run all of our federal agencies. And based on uh, my experience, as well as the experience of folks that joined the team right off the bat, we knew that uh, using transparency, and in particular using transparency backed by the power of the courts, is a tremendous check on corruption. So for the last year or so, we have been filing open records requests against the Trump administration, trying to uncover corruption. And when they don't answer us in a timely or complete fashion, we're uh, very quick to go to court. Uh, We have over 40 different lawsuits um, active right now. And we've been behind some uh, important disclosures, including... Uh, Jeff Sessions security clearance form where he didn't disclose his contacts with Russia. We got the Department of Justice to admit that Trump lied about being wiretapped by President Obama. Uh, And we've had a number of uh, disclosures about Ben Carson and his furniture or Scott Pruitt and his furniture and travel. Um, you know, a lot of the, the tales of both both uh, gross and um, petty corruption coming out of the Trump administration have been uh, at the hands of our litigation. So for people out there that might be listening that don't know what a FOIA or Freedom of Information Act is, obviously, as journalists, we're very uh, we're very familiar with these. So explain to listeners what that is and why it is such a great tool uh, that we have as part of um, the systems here in America. 
Sure. I, and um, it's really a fundamental principle of our democracy, although the law in question is only uh, a little over 50 years old. Um, it's based on the idea that what public officials do all day belongs to us, the citizens. They work for us, and their emails and their memos and their, uh, their reports belong to us, too. And the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, is a vehicle by which anyone can submit a request to a federal agency and say, give me documents about X. And the agency has to respond uh, technically within 20 business days. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they don't, you can take them to court to enforce it. Um, there are some big loopholes. Uh, the White House is not subject to the FOIA. Congress is not subject to the FOIA. So the, the principle behind the law is not as universal as, uh, as it should be. But even um, in, its, uh, in its current state, it's a very powerful tool for uh, exposing government operations, which can be a, a tool for exposing corruption. Uh, some of the things that you were just mentioning um, that you guys have broken, the list goes on and on right now. So um, any sort of, I guess, common denominators or things that um, you're seeing uh, patterns develop or whatnot when you're starting to dig into uh, some of the, the the problems that you're seeing out there right now with some of these government agencies? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, what I what we've what we're seeing is that the character of the president has really uh, flowed downhill to the federal agencies. You have cabinet appointees and their senior political uh, appointees under them operating with a presumption of secrecy, trying to block access to information, um, and engaging in conduct that uh, does not seem to be in the best interest of uh, the public. And in many cases, from Scott Pruitt to Ben Carson. Um, to uh, Tom Price, you have individuals who clearly see public service as an opportunity for private comfort, uh, first-class travel, office upgrades. Um, you know, trying to keep the press out of their business. That they're not—they're operating the federal government like Donald Trump used to run the Trump Organization, a private for-profit organization. There seems to be something new that's popping up every single day, and some people seem to be getting tired of it, but how important is that we stick to it and make sure that we are keeping our government agencies transparent? I think it's really important for journalists and groups like mine to stay on the issues every day. Every time there's a new scandal that pops up, let's expose it, let's get the facts. But I don't know that it's necessarily the responsibility of every citizen out there, every news consumer to have full fluency in every story. For folks like that, you know, you can rely on politicians or other organizations or op-ed writers or editorial boards, you know, people who can synthesize these stories into uh, narratives that, you know, put it all together. For us, what we're seeing is a narrative of corruption. These are people who are serving themselves rather than the public. And uh, one of the reasons, though, that all these little investigations, all these little scandals or scandalets matter is that, you know, people can smell bull. They know when they're getting spun. So the, the talking points about, you know, the White House or an agency or attacking them, they don't really resonate. What, what really resonates are black and white facts. And we often get challenged on whether, you know, are we anti-Trump or um, political? What, what I say is it's we're just trafficking in the emails of senior appointees. It's not our fault that their emails make them look bad. And then people can put the story together themselves. When you decided to found the um, American Oversight, was that 
at all politically motivated for you? Or, you know, because I, I see that there's a lot of like uh, Obama era people, Democratic aides that work for you guys. Um, but uh, so is there any sort of a um, an extra flame or fuel that gets you guys more fired up for this than maybe say, you know, if we have another president in office, would you be doing the same thing down the road? There's absolutely no question that the election of Donald Trump drove the founding of American oversight. He raises unprecedented challenges and concerns. And look, I invite him and his administration to put us out of business, start acting ethically, start, you know, showing your work, stop hiding uh, what you're doing, stop lying to the public. That'll make transparency advocates like us, um, you know, unnecessary. Getting up in the morning right now, reading the news, seeing a problem at HUD or, you know, that will affect thousands and thousands of families or uh, news today that the education department is unwinding an investigative unit that's been going after predatory student loan lenders. Like, why are they doing that? It is not hard to get up in the morning and be angry. What's a, what makes it a privilege to work in American Oversight and many of our peer organizations is that it feels like we can do something about it and help explain to the country that, uh, you know, the facts behind the stories. I uh, want to switch switch gears just a little bit and come locally here to Massachusetts for for just a second. Um, When we talk about public records laws um, here in Massachusetts, first, what was your experience like working uh, with that? And then also just wondering, you know, um, even on the local level, how important is it that we have access to government officials and what they're doing and the information that is going on behind the doors, because we don't actually get to sit in uh, on all those conversations and emails. So uh, when I was working up in Massachusetts, I was a law clerk, both at the uh, state Supreme Court and then also the federal district court. And I don't think I ever had any direct hands-on experience with the Massachusetts public records laws. But what I did have was a lot of exposure to some of the most important anti-corruption work in the state's history. And that's everything from uh, the Whitey the Bulger issues and the FBI to the local co- corruption with Sal Macy and Diane Wilkerson. If you don't think transparency helps drive out corruption, uh, you haven't been paying attention to the Boston and Massachusetts headlines for the last 25 years. It's critically important. Um, I have been following some of the public debate about access to public records laws in Massachusetts, and I didn't appreciate this until recently, that the state is regularly ranked towards the bottom of the uh, on a transparency index across the country. That's a real problem for a, for a state that has roots in uh, you know, John Adams and the fundamental principles of our country. Uh, Massachusetts should be doing better. Um, I would to see it become one of a handful of states that uh, exposes legislatures, the legislature to uh, open records laws. That could be a huge source of transparency about how the sausage is made. Um, but at minimum, you know, the governor's office needs to open up. The, the it should there should be a low barrier for people requesting records of their government. It, uh, you know, uh, high fees for public records laws are almost like a poll tax. Like you, you shouldn't have to pay to participate. Bottom line, government works for us, right? Absolutely. Austin Evers, appreciate you joining us today, Executive Director for American Oversight. Uh, appreciate your insight. Great. Thank you so much. Identify problems, come up with some solutions, help people. Uh, knowledge is a great weapon. Uh, remember last week we were talking about um, the new Kanye song? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to find out whether he meant to be funny with that. So I, um, I found a professor from Berkeley College of Music, 
Um, his name is Prince, Al uh, sorry, Prince Charles Alexander. And um, I just, I asked him about this, uh, about Kanye, and it turned out he had worked with him. Okay. So what he said? So let's, uh, if you would indulge me for one second, if you could put your headphones on, yeah. I'm going to play you what we talked about. Kanye speaks to something that has not yet happened for hip-hop because he is a hip-hop artist. Hip-hop still has not been accepted in the music academy. Hip-hop has been accepted in the social academic circles, the, the sociological academic circles, like co colleges like Harvard and uh, others around the country look at hip-hop as a social construct, as a fashion construct. But as a musical construct, hip-hop has not really been embraced yet. One of the reasons is because the, the tools that you use in technology are not conventional tools. It's not a saxophone. It's not a violin. It's not a drum set. And that... Uh, that kind of rub against what music schools are speaks to why Kanye has a difficult place being put in, in a lineage of musicians like Charlie Parker or John Coltrane or Miles Davis. Is he the Miles of our time is what I'm always asking myself. If we're looking at it in terms of impact on culture and impact on musical culture, uh, yes. He is the Miles of the 21st century, without a doubt. So, 1987 sees the, uh, the democratization of the sampler. And groups like Public Enemy and NWA gravitate toward the Akai S900 sampler and start to take little pieces of songs and do interesting things with them, create collages, uh, very much like an Andy Warhol type of a collage or something. Um, so this skill set is part of the DNA of Kanye West. What was new with his first record, um, a College Dropout, was he took a sample from a Chaka Khan record in 1984 called uh, Through the Fire, and he did a, a pitch and time variation of Through the Fire and created a song called Through the Wire. Yo, Chief, they can't stop me from rapping, can they? That was really pushing the parameters of what we do with samplers in and of itself. And then Kanye, like many creative people, like even Miles Davis, once Miles was comfortable with a band, Miles would all of a sudden pop up and just tell everybody to go home and get some new musicians. So what Kanye did once he got comfortable with this idea of being able to turn all kinds of uh, musical pieces from the 80s and, and 70s into new musical pieces, he said, okay, I'm going to stop doing that and I'm going to deconstruct what we do in hip hop. And he created 808s and Heartbreaks. And for me, that was the, the first time when I started to think to myself, okay, Kanye is onto something uh, that, that artists do. 
artists look at art for what it is. Pablo Picasso looks at uh, realism and turns realism, and then he goes to France and sees Impressionism and says, oh, I want to do that too. And then he says, okay, well, what else can we do? And he goes to the Cubist Revolution, so forth and so on. So now I felt like I was looking at a real artist. Uh, and 808s and Heartbreaks takes, um, it's not just that the 808 drum machine is the Stradivarius of hip hop. The 808 drum machine plays with the frequency range in music. Human beings can hear from 20 cycles to 20,000 cycles. So 20 is like really low and it makes your stomach rumble. 20,000 is very, very high. Most of us can't hear it. Babies can hear it. But within that range, from about 40 cycles to about 1,000 cycles is where the human voice lays. And Kanye um, has an instrument that gets down to about 40 cycles. And then he takes it and puts it in a sampler and takes, takes it down to about 30 cycles. Now he was using that part of the frequency spectrum as a place to create from. And that shaping is a, a, a hallmark of his, his passion, his dedication, his focus, his intensity. Um, so he's not only playing with the rhyme scheme, but he's also playing with the, with the way that the upper harmonics of the vocal are being perceived. All of these are concepts of music and musicianship that you might hear on a trumpet or a saxophone, um, but Kanye is doing them with technology. And that is what makes hip hop the 21st century music that it is. When notation, just writing music down, was introduced in, I don't know, the 12th century or whatever it might have been, that was seen as the devil's work. When the piano was invented, the piano was seen as this, this horrible instrument that was gonna take the beauty of the stringed instrument and turn it into something really gross. When recorded sound came along in the, the 1880s, John Philip Sousa went to Congress and said, why are you allowing this thing to, to come into the world? It's gonna destroy music forever. <laughs> so almost every single thing that we love has been contested. Hip hop, follows in a long line of things that are contested by conventional society. And conventional society usually has it wrong. You know, my first impression of the sampling artist, because I'm a musician, was that it's a lazy way to create. Once I started to spend time around Kanye, because he was in my studio, I think around 99, 2000, and he was just a young kid making beats for Jay-Z and Alicia Keys, I started to really look at his focus, and I was like, that's the same focus I had when I was a kid learning my saxophone. And it took me a while as a musician to really understand what it meant to, it, to the audiences that were receiving the work, and that the artists were being received with the same acclaim as Fats Waller in his time, the same acclaim as a George Clinton in his time. And my goal is for Berkeley and the other music academies to look at hip hop as just part of a long evolution of what we as musicians have been doing and now what we as musical technologists must do in the 21st century. Young people get to define how our culture moves forward artistically. And those who are in power that get to write about our culture, they're trying to preserve something that, that was fond for them when they were 20. 
And I, I've been doing a bit of research on this, and I can see this thing happening uh, in every single generation. And I, I just smile to myself, like, yeah, here we are again, rejecting the uh, the notion of the creative artist to want to move forward and to not want to tread ground that has already been tread. And that is the mindset of a true musician and the mindset of a true musical artist. And uh, that's where Kanye is occupying that space. And he's closer to a Pablo Picasso um, for that notion mm -hmm. alone. Well, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the early part of the 20th century, you have Stravinsky invent the modern orchestra, Picasso reinvent what art can be perceived as, James Joyce invents the modern novel. All of them questioned, not appreciated in their time. And I think the professor is probably exactly right, that hip-hop certainly is a cultural phenomenon. If anyone has adolescent or young people in their family knows, this is a generational difference. I know that, John, you are an enormous enormously knowledgeable fan of jazz and uh, you know same thing there that that it takes several generations sometimes to go by to tr completely appreciate a new artist or a new way of interpreting music it's no surprise that Kanye isn't going to be embraced by the academy now he's not going to be taught at conservatories now because of the generations who are in the professorships right oh I, I agree and you know the what he says about how this is the cycle of music, that periodically people come along who, in their thirst for experimentation and innovation and just the desire to not do the same old thing, right. even to the point of his story about Miles Davis sending the musicians home, bring me in some new ones. You know, this uh, it reminds me of George Martin and the mm -hmm. Beatles. Absolutely. And all the experimenting he right. did with new sound recording techniques, um, musical instruments that were not normally used with rock mm -hmm. and roll, so on and so forth. What One thing that struck, struck me, though, listening to the professor's analysis is um, he didn't really delve into this too much, but he suggested that, you know, there's a political element to the way we mm -hmm. receive Kanye. And I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, unlike a Picasso whose full depravity as a person wasn't widely known at the, at the time. time he became famous, or Ray Charles, mm -hmm. who, if you saw the movie, was also not really a sure. nice person in, right. in many ways uh, in portions of his life. Uh, nowadays, we, we know we, in real time. We, we know everything yeah. about, and Kanye is in our face in all these ways, many of which are annoying to say the least and repulsive to say the worst. Uh, that doesn't necessarily say anything about his his musical his ability. music or his right. art, right. but it's something that we see again and again now in this day and age that we have too much information sometimes about these artists among us. It's true. And it's off-putting. And in terms, I think you're right about that, in terms of hip-hop being appreciated in the here and now, one thing that really did surprise me was um, the phenomenal success of Hamilton uh, comes from the most surprising corner of the musical and artistic world. That Broadway, of all art forms, you know, an original American art form, uh, would go from 
Rodgers and Hammerstein inventing the modern musical with Oklahoma, then Stephen Sondheim really moving it forward uh, with his reinterpreting the style in the 60s to Lin-Manuel Miranda being able to integrate rap and hip-hop so that you have these sort of, you know, Fifth Avenue matrons singing hip-hop songs on their way out of the theater is really surprising. But the genius of what he did, I think, is that he connects it back to the American origin and the American Revolution that he identified uh, that in a founding father, which was a revolutionary concept, um, these people who wrote themselves out of the circumstances they were in, that was why he thought to connect hip-hop and that culture, that these people... uh, were writing themselves out of their circumstances and connecting it back to that being a truly American ideal was really the genius, that, that's I think, great, of what we're seeing and why it's overtaking the entire world. That's a great point. And also, you know, you have the common human denominators of, mm-hmm. you know, anger, uncertainty, jealousy, all these things that were a part of what was mm-hmm. going on with Hamilton and the right. founding fathers. Right. You know, uh, certainly Coming up from the bottom. Those are not inconsistent with the underlying emotions of hip-hop or yeah. rap. And don't you think that the true test of, you know, do we still teach, as you were saying before, Stravinsky, Picasso, James Joyce, these are the people who lived on because of the quality and true genius of their time. It's only going to be a time that will tell, you know, if 100 years from now, Kanye is incorporated into a conservatory's curriculum. Well, and, you know, you got to watch and see if, as I mentioned, the, the, um, uh, the atmospherics of, Con- of Kanye, right. the, the secondary mm-hmm. stuff about who he is and how he acts, yeah. it'll be interesting to see if that overwhelms the artistic talent and contribution. I'm not so sure it won't. Well, okay. I mean, we'll see. And that is it for Studio BZ for this week. We had a lot of, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the news cycle that we just don't have the time to talk about on the, on the TV news. And it doesn't stop. No, it doesn't stop. This year, it just has not stopped. It's great. So what also I hope will not stop is the support you've been showing for Studio BZ. Uh, One way you can support is to subscribe and tell your friends it's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yes, we have a Twitter handle now at Studio BZ Pod. At so Studio BZ, us. that sounds like a character on Star Trek: Next Generation. <laughs> Studio BZ Pod, report to the bridge. Reporting for duty, and uh, yeah, thanks to everybody for listening. We appreciate it. Tell your friends and John. Until the listeners tell us to cut it out, we're going to continue to close the show by Why? saying we'll, we'll be seeing you. you. Isn't that cute? <laughs> Uh, I, I, that's not getting...